Good morning. As we continue through the book of Romans, we come to the center section of Romans where Paul wants to deal with some issues of the Christian life. That issue being how we live from the old man into the new man. It's not an easy subject because he had to deal with people who were still steeped in earning God's pleasure by observance of the law. He was caught in this place of of needing to be able to explain the amazing grace of God and yet at the same time refute the things that were being said about him when it came to the grace of God that he was promoting license, that he was promoting uh, do whatever you want and grace will cover it all kind of thing. Because Paul wasn't interested in, in that kind of theology or that kind of doctrine. But he was interested in grace and all that was afforded us in grace. There's a man named John, and in his early teens, he ran away from home. And he joined the crew of a slave ship. Some years later, He was himself actually sold into slavery to an African woman who abused him badly. He eventually escaped, and he lived amongst a group of Africans, eventually becoming a captain of his own slave ship. After his miraculous conversion to Jesus in 1748, he returned to England, his home, where he became a tireless minister of the gospel and a songwriter of hymns. John Newton is probably best known for writing one of the most popular songs in all of history, not just the church, in all of history. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John's gravestone in the churchyard that he pastored bears these words that he actually wrote himself. John Newton, cleric. Cleric just means pastor. Once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he long labored to destroy. I think John Newton understood understood probably better than most what it meant to be free, what it meant to be freed from a life of self-destructing sin and given a new life of grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. In our passage this morning in Romans chapter 6, Paul gives us a challenge and a promise about this freedom. So if you would, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read out of the NIV this morning. This is what it says in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? He's referring to the things he talked about in chapter 5 about grace. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
if we had been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer up the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. This is a very practical understanding of sin and grace. We're going to get into that in a moment. Right now, I just want to stop and pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just want to come before you this morning, understanding at least in part, if not in full, Father, I'm not sure we'll ever understand in full the amazing grace that you've given us, the bounds to which your love could not be fettered, couldn't be stopped, won't be restrained. Father, I pray that we begin to understand at least a little bit more, a little bit deeper, this incredible love, this incredible grace, this incredible promise of freedom that you've offered to us. Thank you for this book, Father, and the way that Paul approaches such a difficult subject, and yet at the same time, such an incredibly important one. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, every great love story, every great love story, there's always a rival in the story, isn't there? That rival may not be a person, but it is something that threatens to come between the love and the beloved. Sometimes it's geography. Sometimes it's time or schedule. Sometimes it's a job or a calling. Sometimes it's an addiction or an obsession. It may even be other people in the form of friends and family that try to come between. That's the way love stories kind of go, isn't it? Every great love story seems to have some rival for the affections of at least one or both people involved. If you're a believer today, you're in a love relationship with God. According to 1 Corinthians 8.3, but the man who loves God is known by God. In other words, there's an intimacy, a love relation, an intimate love relationship that we have with God. We are involved in a personal love story with God, each and every one of us. Now, I don't know if you remember the old movie, A Love Story. I mean, that was a long time ago. It starred Ryan O'Neill and Ally McGraw. Uh, I mean, we're talking about I was probably in my 20s when this movie came out, and Ryan O'Neill was still good-looking back then. Um, just teasing. It was a sad story. I mean, you know, it was one of those date movies, you know, where you took a girl to the, the, the theater, but, you know, you ended up crying halfway through the movie and then finishing with crying afterwards. It was one of those very sad sad love stories, because the rival, the antagonist, 
in this love story relationship was actually, it, it looked like it was going to be the father because Ryan in the story, he was an aspiring lawyer going to grad school and all that kind of stuff. And he decided to get married to this girl that his father didn't approve of. And his father cut him off. His father was very wealthy, cut him off. And so they ended up living in a poor place, uh, an apartment over top of a garage. And, and he was going to school to try to finish. And they were just, it was, it was one of those kind of stories. But they were happy. They were in love. And so you thought that the antagonist, the rival for Ryan's affections, was going to be his father, but that wasn't the real antagonist in the story. The real antagonist was something far more insidious. The real antagonist was a fatal disease. You never really found out in the movie exactly what the disease was. They kind of hinted to the idea that it was leukemia, uh, which is a form of cancer. There's always something that wants to come between the loved and the beloved. There's always a rival for affections, attention, whatever. You know what? The same is true for us. In this great love story that we're involved with with God, there is an antagonist. There is a rival for our affections, and it's called sin. Here's what you really need to know about that thing called sin. It is a rival that is beatable. It is a rival that can be defeated. We are no longer sin's slave. Billy Sunday was a baseball player, baseball evangelist, and a reformer. And I think he kind of had the right idea, the right uh, direction to go. He preached Christ as the only answer to man's needs until his death in 1935. He said of this, he said, I am against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. And I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. When I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it until I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. I liked his attitude, you know. This is an enemy that is defeatable. It's fightable. Paul declares in verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Folks, God desires holiness and purity for us. Why? Not so we can keep rules, okay? Get this, that is not what God desires. He desires holiness and purity because he desires intimacy with you. And that is the path into intimacy. God will not have intimacy with someone who is against, going against the grain of holiness, going against purity. Our sin puts him at arm's length. And that's just the truth of what our relationship with him is. He wants us. He wants us to be better people than we are, but not just for keeping rules but because he wants us ultimately to be like Jesus who said, I and the Father are one. Such complete intimacy, such complete connection. That's what he desires. You know, both the Old and the New Testament declare, be holy as I am holy. 
Sounds like something of a tall order to me. I'm not holy in all that I do or say, but I'd like to be. I would like to be without fault. I would like to be without blemish. I would like to be without sin. In order for that to happen, I have to be set free from the power of sin before I can grow to become what God wants, his intimate friend. In order for that to happen, I have to start thinking differently. In regard to sin, I have to become like a dead man walking. Why? Because dead men have lost the ability to respond to the world. Sin has to become like a foreign language to me. Sort of like Spanish, actually. I I don't know about you. Maybe you did this too. I took Spanish when I was in seventh grade. Over the years, I have forgotten almost everything I learned because I didn't walk in it. I didn't practice it. I didn't even give it the time of day. When I hear people speaking Spanish today, I don't understand it at all. I might pick a word out here or there if it's a construction term, and that's about it. That's what the voice of sin needs to be in me and to me as well. A foreign language, a voice that has no meaning, a dead language. That's how Paul sees it. That's the response to sin he talks about in verse 2. By no means, he says. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The answer to the question that he poses in verse 1, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Some of your translations might read, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That may it never be, or by no means, whatever it's translated in your particular version of the Bible you're looking at. In the Greek, it's called mi jiento, and it literally and accurately translates as may it never be. It is the strongest language used in the New Testament to say, no way, dude, absolutely not. It communicates a sense of outrage at the mere thought that we would sin more that grace would abound. Paul is saying, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Have you gone off the deep end? See, and Paul's thinking to continue in sin, well, it's unthinkable. When you being belonging to a holy God, being attached to a holy God, how can you even conceive of the idea of continuing in that which would keep you at arm's distance from him. I I agree with Paul. 100%, I agree with him. But then I have a problem, don't I? Because you see, I still sin. Oh no. Oh yeah, I still sin. This creates a dilemma for me, creates a dilemma for you. Does Paul seriously think here that sin is going to stop just because we gave our life to Jesus? Actually, no, because he's going to make that pretty clear a little later on in this letter to the Romans. What he's doing right now, actually, is he's dealing with an issue that has come up in the church where grace is concerned. There's been quite a bit of resistance to the idea of salvation by grace on the part of the Jews. Why? Because they were all schooled in the law as a way to please God. And here comes Paul preaching that the law is worthless towards salvation. In fact, 
The law's defining feature is condemnation. You understand that? The law's defining feature is to tell you what you missed. It's negative. It's not a positive thing. It's to show you that you can't live up to the mark of holiness on your own. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscience, conscious of sin. While Paul declares the law to be worthless in regard to salvation, he says that salvation is available. It's, it's available by grace, through faith, but not through the obedience to the law. So the law doesn't save, but grace does. Grace saves by canceling our debt of sin. So here's where the wheels kind of fell off in people's thinking. If grace is the cure for sin, then why not sin more that grace may increase? It sounds like a good argument. It even sounds kind of logical, doesn't it? The problem, of course, is that no matter how logical it might seem, it's still wrong thinking. The passage exists because Paul is dealing with this wrong thinking. Yes, grace is amazing and abundant, but it's not there so that we can continue in our old ways. It's certainly not there so that those old ways might increase. May it never be. Folks, that's the old self, not the new creature. If we're in Christ, that life, the old life, the old self, that thing is history. It's dead and it's done with, right? It's like the old story of the African convert to Christianity, and he was given a position of trust by the missionary who led him to Christ, but he violated that trust when he stole something. The missionary asked him, well, why did you take something that didn't belong to you? And the native replied, it wasn't I who stole. It was grandfather in the bones. It was his way of saying it was the old sinful nature grandfather in the bones. In time, however, that native grew stronger in his faith. And when he was asked, how is grandfather in the bones? He would reply, well, grandfather isn't dead yet, but he doesn't get around like he used to. (laughs) Hopefully this is true of you as well. As we yield to Christ and we walk with Christ on a daily basis, grandfather in the bones will get weaker and weaker as our intimacy with Jesus grows stronger and stronger. You know, I've said it before, and it's not about running away from sin so much as it's about running into the arms of Jesus. As our intimacy increases, the allure of sin decreases. You cannot have victory over sin by simply running away from it. You actually need something to run to. Sin isn't conquered by the power of positive thinking. Its cure is in having a thought that's different, which is the definition of repentance. Thinking differently comes from a connection with God so that your mind can be renewed. And again, we'll talk about that renewing of the mind when we get to the 12th chapter of Romans. All of this ties together so much, it's hard to avoid jumping forward in the book of Romans and, and not bringing you know, those things that are forward into what we're doing right now. I struggle with that every time I put a sermon together because I love the book of Romans and I want to quote it all over the place. I think verse four says this thing pretty well. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death 
in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I love that. We too may live a new life. There's a reason we, we call this church new life, because we need one. We need one. New life brings new thinking. That really is where Paul is headed in this whole conversation. How shall we who died to sin still live in this thing? That last part, shall live in it. The Greek there, shall live in it, which is the live in is en, E-N. It's just a very short word. But it is a primary preposition denoting a fixed position or a place, a state, a time. It's like a relation of rest. It's like bringing yourself to a place and, and, and living there. That's what it means. Paul is saying, if, you have, if we have died to sin, we can no longer be settled in, comfortable, resting in that life of sin. How could we do that? That's not our life anymore. We've been given a new life. That's the old life. It's not that you won't ever sin. That propensity is still there. It's that it's not something that you'll be comfortable settling into. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit's not going to let you do that. The Holy Spirit is alive and well in you, and he's there to make you uncomfortable with your sin. I know. The Holy Spirit's the comforter. But that's not always how it works. John 16, 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict us of our sin. He is the comforter, but he's also the convictor. There's an old saying, the Holy Spirit was given to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. If you are a worrier, then the Holy Spirit is going to make you uncomfortable in your fears. He's going to remind you of your lack of trust in the goodness of God. If you're prone to anger, the Holy Spirit is going to make you uncomfortable living in that anger. The things that used to be natural for you, the bad habits, the soulish indulgences, they won't be fun anymore. They won't even feel right. It won't feel natural anymore because it's not. That was the old creature. You're a new creature. The closer you get to the Holy Spirit, the less comfortable you're going to, to feel. The closer you get to the Holy Spirit, the more intimate you get with Jesus, the less grandfather in the bones is going to feel at home in you. I like the way Peterson paraphrases the last part of this passage, verses 6 through 14. He says, could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. Same thing that, that Craig read this morning out of Colossians. Our old nature has been nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer it sins every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word 
You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means that you must not give sin a vote in the way that you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected to the old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under the old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. Isn't that a beautiful paraphrase? You stop and think about it. He hits it right on the nose. We're not even supposed to run little side errands for sin's ways, little bunny trails. We don't even allow ourselves the luxury, I guess, of having that thought, of going that direction. Because sin can't tell us how to live anymore. You're not under the old tyranny of the law of trying to keep things straight. You're not under the old tyranny of sin. That's past. That's dead. That's gone. You're living in the freedom that God gave you through Christ Jesus. Napoleon's war machine was drafting large numbers into his army as a young father was about to be inducted. His wife and his children were gathered around him in a tearful scene, as you can imagine. It was their response to a desperate situation. When a neighbor stepped forward, looking at what was happening, he took his place for his neighbor, allowing his neighbor to stay with his family. It was allowed. It was part of the custom. It was part of the law. Later on, this man who had volunteered in place of this young father was killed in battle. Several years after his death, the draft came once again to the same village, and that same father was picked out for induction into the army. This time, however, the young father boldly stepped forward before the draft board and produced a parchment, which he displayed tearfully for all to read. It read, This man perished upon the battlefield of Rivoli in the person of his substitute. Signed, Napoleon Bonaparte. This is a picture of the freedom that grace has both brought and bought for our lives. Could it be any clearer? The old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer it sins every beck and call. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. Now, I could talk to you for the rest of the day about this concept, about how dying brings life, how death has been conquered by life in Christ Jesus, how sin was once your mother tongue and, and now you have God's voice in you, how we're no longer slaves to sin's beck and call. But now we respond to the voice, the call of God. But to be honest, no matter how eloquent, no matter how persuasive my words might be, you probably won't remember most of them. Your 5% of the words that you remember out of any given sermon, okay, are probably already spent. So I'm going to do something a little different this morning. With what little time we have left, I'm going to let you write your own sermon. 
In a very practical way, I'm going to let you write the end of this sermon this morning. I figured if you write your own sermon, you're more likely to remember it when the enemy comes to tempt you to sin again. And hopefully you'll also have a response to that temptation. And folks, he will come. Whatever you write today, rest assured it will be challenged. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember verses 6 and 7. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. I want you to take a piece of paper. I've provided paper in the little bins on the table, just some small pieces of blank paper. There should be at least four or so in every bin. If you don't have enough for your table, there's plenty at other tables. I want you to take a piece of paper. There's some pens in those bins as well. I want you to, very privately, write down on that piece of paper your sin. Now, not all your sin, okay? That would take longer to do than me <laughs> preaching the end of this sermon, okay? No, just, I, I just want you to, to, to do a reoccurring kind of sin, something that you've struggled with, something you maybe haven't had victory over in the past, something that you would like to walk out of here this morning and not take with you. Now, if you need a moment to, to, to pray, go ahead. I don't think most of you can probably need a moment to pray. You probably know the things you struggle with because you struggle with them. When you're done, this is what I want you to do. I want you to fold that paper over because this is just between you and God. No one else will ever see what you wrote. No one else will ever know. When you're done, I want to invite you to do this. I want to invite you to come forward. And on the cross, just like Janet did, there's about nine nails on the side and on the front of the cross. I want you to just punch that paper right through the nail as though it was nailed to the cross. And that's where you leave it. That's where the sin stays. When we're done today, I'm going to take all those pieces of paper down, pull the nails out of the cross because it will not pack in the trailer with those nails in it. And I'm going to take those pieces of paper and without him looking at them, I'm going to take them outside into the fire pit and burn them. The reason I'm going to do that is because Paul says in this passage that our sin is done away with. And just like the smoke that rises and gets blown away by the wind, so is your sin. So I want to give you a few minutes to deal with that. And then I'll close. Two things I want you to remember as you go out of this place. Yes, what you wrote down will be contended with. But now you have an anchor. In the Old Testament, it was called a goad, a stake in the ground that they would tether an animal to. You have a mark. You have something to anchor yourself to, that this sin has been nailed to the cross because you just did it. And it doesn't have to follow you. The only way it can is if you allow it to. Okay? The second thing I want you to remember this is a house of honor. So it's against the rules to ask anybody what they wrote, even if they're your spouse. Okay? 
We don't ask, and we don't tell, unless you want to. Okay, if you want to share that with your spouse, you're, you're welcome to do that. And I think if you want to share it with other people, you're welcome to do that, but you don't have to. This is between you and God. It's not between you and anybody else. Understand? So no fair asking, okay? Just let it be what it is between you and God. But go out of this place with freedom. Walk out of that door today and don't ever look back. When the enemy reminds you that's who you are, say, no, that's the old self. That thing's been done away with. Jesus took it to the cross with him and it got nailed right on the cross. Okay? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you love us the way that you do, that Jesus, you paid the price for us to be able to do what we just did. Take the things we struggle with and nail them to your cross where your blood covers them and washes them clean and they are done away with. They don't have to follow us into tomorrow or even into today. We leave them behind. And we commit ourselves to walking in the freedom that your sacrifice on the cross bought and paid for. We claim that in your name. And Father, I declare it over us as a people that we are free in the name of Jesus, not in our own strength, not in our own ability to say no to sin, but in the blood of Jesus, we are free because he paid it all. In Jesus' name, amen.